0: Welcome to Compounding Capital, a podcast where we dive into the discovery process to help you compound your capital. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Discovery may maintain positions and securities discussed in this podcast. Discovery is suitable for wholesale investors only. Past performance is not indicative of future performance. Welcome, my name's Chris Bainbridge. I'm joined by my co-host, Mark Devisich. How are you going, Mark?
1: Going well. Summer's definitely arrived in Auckland. How about you, Chris?
0: Great, looking forward to reporting season. Markets were relatively quiet in January, do you want to share an update on how things went?
1: Yes, January was a month of consolidation. Looking forward to February and reporting season, we believe there will be several companies that report incrementally better outlook statements than the last six months of trading. This should be positive for sentiment, it will be a busy period in February and typically the fund moves a lot over this reporting timeframe. Founders Fund was up 0.6% versus our benchmark, the ASX Small Ordinaries Accumulation Index, which was up 0.5% in Kiwi dollar terms. And the 16 months since inception, the Founders Fund is up 71.9% versus the benchmark, up 10.4% in NZD terms. There is still uncertainty around when interest rates will be cut, both here and Australia and in the US. However, in the interim, consumer spending is still robust, especially in the US, and employment strong. We'll be watching closely what management teams have to say on these trends in February. Do you want to talk to one of the companies which updated during the month?
0: It's easy to talk about your winners. However, we're committed to being candid with our investors, and not all investments go to plan. When they don't, we learn from them. That was the case with a small investment we had in soft tissue regeneration company, Arod Biosurgery. Arrod develops and manufactures medical devices used in trauma, hernia, and breast reconstruction surgeries. Revenue is derived primarily from the U.S. via two products. First, Myriad, which is used for trauma wounds and sold directly by Aroa's own sales force. And secondly, Overtex, which is used in hernia and breast reconstruction surgeries and sold via its U.S. listed partner, Telebio. Founded in 2008, Aroa a New Zealand success story which can be assessed through the lens of our four Ps. Potential, Predictability, People and Profitability. Looking at the potential, Aurora has developed a proprietary biologic soft tissue regeneration platform derived from sheep stomachs. If you're wondering what that actually means, think of a large plaster that a surgeon inserts in a wound which acts as a sort of scaffold and allows the body to regenerate and replace the damaged tissue. Aurora's products have nailed the balance between healing efficacy and cost. Simply put, Aurora's products offer faster healing with lower complication rates at a cheaper price. Aroa's compelling proposition has seen rapid product take-up in the $1.5 billion US wound care market, with sales growing from just $22 million in FY22 to $67 to 70 in FY24. Looking to the medium term, Aroa has provided three-year revenue growth targets of 25% plus per annum. It's also putting its money where its mouth is, investing in two manufacturing plants in Auckland capable of generating revenue of at least $150 million in sales. They have additional products as well which you've been following.
1: In addition to its two key existing products, Myriad and Overtex, Arola has a number of new products being commercialised, including its breakout product, Anevo. Anevo is a dead space management product. Dead space is space remaining in a wound after surgery, which can fill with fluid and create complications. There isn't a neat solution for dealing with dead space. At the time of the IPO in 2020, Aniva was expected to launch with FDA approval before 31st of March 2022, and contribute more than 40% of Aurora's revenue within five years of launch. Unfortunately, like Avatar 3, ANEVO has cost more and taken longer, while still Two years away from launch, Aneva is just one arrow in the quiver which Aroa has to sustain its long-term growth ambitions.
0: In terms of predictability, I'll speed things up. Exposure to the US healthcare spend offers defensive growth. There are about 64 million surgical procedures in the US last year, and this has grown at a rate slightly above GDP, around 5% per annum. Aroa is taking share in the $1.5 billion wound care market. Anecdotally, once a surgeon begins using Aroa's products, Repeat rates are high. Looking at people, Aroa is led by energetic founder Brian Ward, who remains highly aligned with a 10% shareholding. The board is similarly aligned, controlling 17% of the shares on issue.
1: Finally, profitability. Profitability has been masked by Aroa's heavy investment in product development, particularly the Nevo product. For example, in FY23, Aroa made 1.5 million of EBITDA despite investing $7 million developing a Nevo which is expected to commercialize over the next few years. This heavy investment into future growth is the right decision and Aurora has the flexibility to do it. They've got over $30 million of cash with no debt. Despite having bright prospects, FY24 has been a challenging year for Aurora. What's been the issue so far?
0: Put simply, sales are being lower than Aurora's expectations. As a reminder, revenue is derived primarily from the US market via two products, Myriad which is sold by its own direct sales force and Overtex, which is sold via its US-listed partner Telebio. Before getting into the January update, let's provide some context. In May 2023, Aurora provided guidance for FY24 of $72-$75 million of revenue and $1-$2 to $2 million of EBITDA. The guidance was forecast to be second half weighted due to lower sales to its distribution partner Tala in the first half. More on that later. Are you able to update us on what happened in New November?
1: At its half year result in November, AROA revised its guidance down primarily due to lower sales of Myriad in the first half. Commentary at the time was that Myriad sales had started to slow in Q1. Q2, however, was strong and Q3 was looking good. Despite the reinsurance, we materially reduced our position. Experience has taught us that the first sign of weakness typically isn't the last. We retained a small position given AROA's potential. However, this was a mistake. Small positions cost you money. In January, Aurora derated after after it downgraded FY24 guidance to revenue of 67 to 70 million and EBITDA to a loss of one to $3 million. The source of the downgrade was lower than expected sales of both their key products. Lower sales were attributed to a myriad of issues, including inventory management by distribution partner, Teller, and a delayed product launch, and lower procedure levels and staff holidays. So where to from here?
0: Despite the downgrade, Aroha's got more potential than Cam Royguard. Sales are growing strongly. For example, Myriad will still grow this year at 70 to 85%. FY25 should provide an inflection in profitability. There's a pipeline of exciting new products which aren't currently contributing to revenue. And Aroha remains well capitalized with $30 million of cash and no debt. That's the positives, but it's important to consider both sides of the coin, particularly Aroa's distribution agreement with its US-listed partner, Telebio. What are your thoughts on this?
1: Telebio has an exclusive distribution license for Aroa's overtext product in hernia and breast reconstruction in the US market. And this agreement extends out to 2031. Under the agreement, Aroa receives 27% of the net product sales generated by Teller. These sales come in at around a 75% gross margin, and because there's little additional costs, it's essentially all net profit to Aurora. Teller buy, sells almost exclusively Aurora's Overtex product. The good news for Aurora is that Teller has been growing faster than US government debt, with sales growing from 18.2 million in USD and FY20 towards 56 to 60 million this calendar year, 23 the high growth in sales has come at a cost with teller annualizing 40 million dollars of losses for just 60 million dollars of revenue the balance sheet is also stretched while teller has 58 million dollars of cash this won't last long it's burning 10 million dollars a quarter and already has 40 million dollars of debt the plan was to grow into profitability but this has hit a hiccup in november last year with teller downgrading its revenue guidance from 60 to 65 to 57 to 60.
0: in the short term in the absence of Teller's Q423 results, which we expect to be released in March, it would be reasonable to have concerns about Teller's inventory requirements from Aurora for calendar 24. This could pose a risk to Aurora's sales. In the long term, burning $10 million a quarter on $60 million of revenue is unsustainable. Teller will likely need additional capital, and as we've seen in FY24, any slowdown or change in the ordering patterns with Teller presents material risk to Aurora. Overall, Aurora has plenty of potential. However, with investor confidence wounded, the market will likely require evidence of execution before Aurora achieves a recovery. Right, this brings us to our most exciting part of our show, leaders and layouts from the ASX this month. Do you want to kick things off?
1: Yeah, I'll kick things off the leader this month. A leader for the month was Jumbo Interactive. Jumbo or JIN, the ticker J-I-N on the ASX, was up 12% for the month. For a bit of background, Gin are an authorised online-only reseller of lottery tickets in Australia. They sell these on their own online website, auslotteries.com.au, and it was founded by Mike Bavaker in 1986, and the is based in Brisbane. Their revenue model is simple. They receive a 9.3% reseller commission of the subscription price from the Lottery Corp, which is a $11 billion listed company on the ASX. The Lottery Corp owns the licences to the lotteries in Australia. Lottery Corp has licenses of various duration from all the states in Australia, apart from the Northern Territory. Gin then add their own commission on top, which aggregates the total commission to around 22% of the transaction value. Lotteries are economically resilient, having grown at 3.7% gas since 1990, with little volatility. So Remus are generally very predictable and reliable secret sauce for JIN is their ability to acquire customers at a low cost of around $18 and then keep those customers engaged and playing often. They offer a differentiated offering with syndicates, user-friendly app, and the ability to split payments amongst multiple players. The average spend per active player is around $480 per year. JIN also pays a fee back to the Lottery Corp, which has been increasing each year from 2.5% to 3.5% last year, to 4.65% this year. Gin has increased its commission recently to offset the impacts of this higher fee paid to the Lottery Corp. The increased service fee which has stepped up over the last few years has been a headwind to Gin's profit margin. The potential
0: for Gin has been a mega trend in the shift to online. This has been positive for Gin and a headwind for news agents. The digital disruption that has happened in online classifieds such as Seek, Car Sales, Trade Me, RealEstate.com is happening to lotteries. The share that has been moving online has been consistently increasing at 3-4% per year and is currently at 38% having grown from just 13.7% in FY17. There are markets in Europe where online share of lotteries has reached up to 70%. This structural growth has seen Jin's profits increase from just 2.7 million dollars EBITDA in 2008 to over 70 million dollars this year which means that if you've been a Jin shareholder over that period you've made 75 times your money who needs to win the lottery with those returns in the short term though gin is a play on jackpots there is a relatively consistent amount of ticket sales generated from regular players in the less than 15 million dollar draws where the variability arrives is the larger than 15 million dollar draws especially the larger jackpots which draw in the least frequent players Jin had approximately 14% of the online market share but their market share spikes in the jackpot activity periods as they over index players who come along for the big draw. So what has caused the recent share price run?
1: After a poor run of jackpots in the first half of the financial year, there were signs of life at the end of last year when Oslotto jackpotted to over $100 million in late December. This was only enough to have total industry ticket sales down 5% year on year in the first half. What has happened in January is a huge run in jackpots for Powerball. As this podcast is going live, the Powerball draw is the largest ever draw at 200 million, up from 150 million the week before. The previous highest amount was 160 million in October 22. We've seen an uptick Oz Lottery app downloads in January for this draw. What you don't want to hear is that the odds of winning Division One on the Powerball is one in 135 million. However, this is not going to stop half of all Australian adults buying a ticket this week. I have to confess, I bought a ticket last week and showing strong commitment bias, I'm about to buy another one for this week too. This has set Gin up for a jumbo set of second half numbers and consensus forecasts have been upgraded each week as the Powerball is jackpotted from 50 to 100 million to 150 million to 200 million in the last four weeks. Cumulative Powerball jackpots 2024 year to date Approximate 530 million and are already greater than Powerball's entire second half 23 contribution of 502 million. And it's only just been one month. EBITDA forty five twenty four is now likely to trend towards 72 to 75 million dollars depending on how jackpots go for the rest of the financial year. So is gin worth a punt now?
0: As lotteries are a statistical play and jackpot activity will mean revert it makes sense to buy gin after a poor jackpot run and sell it after a strong run as earnings and market sentiment will under and overshoot respectively. Right now with a strong jackpot run the share price is over $15. However only a month ago the share price was languishing after a poor jackpot run around $13 and the company was buying back shares which provided a floor on the share price. Apart from the recent excitement there is M&A optionality with gin as they have a healthy balance sheet with available cash of over $40 million. The business generates strong free cash flow and their expertise in lotteries values well for them applying this to managed operators of lotteries in overseas markets such as the UK and Canada. It sounds like a sure bet, but what are the risks?
1: Jin only has a licence to resell lotteries for 10 years until August 2030. When it comes time for renewal, Gin may be forced into giving more of the economics to TLC or may not even be renewed at all as TLC have their own online app called The Lot. Gin have been actively trying to diversify their exposure outside of Australian lotteries by making acquisitions into overseas jurisdictions and expanding into charity lotteries where they run an online lottery on behalf of the charity or just provide the software that enables the charity to provide it. They have also made three small acquisitions overseas that give them exposure to charity lotteries and they are looking for more. The other risks are virtual lotteries or overseas lotteries being offered into Australia. Can you give us an example of this?
0: One example currently is a lottery office. When a player buys a ticket, the lottery office buys a matching ticket, an equivalent overseas lottery draw such as a US Powerball, using the same lottery numbers selected by the player. If the overseas ticket wins a prize, it's collected by the lottery office, who then pays the player the exact amount of money that was collected. Although lottery betting was legislated against in 2018, a subsequent court appeal ruled that the lottery office was not captured by the legislation. When we chatted with a long-time listener of the podcast, Jaden, the CFO of Jumbo, he acknowledged that these operations are likely to be further legislated and is devaluing the value of the state's lottery licenses as well as losing tax revenue offshore. Let's keep, keep a watching eye on this and hope Jaden is correct. For any lucky winners out there in the $200 million Powerball, Discovery is still taking applications for the Founders Fund. If
1: that was a leader for the month. What laggard have you brought us?
0: One company which failed to deliver in... January was Domino's, which ended the month down over 30% and on a one-year basis is down nearly 50%. Let's start at the beginning. Domino's is an Australian success story. Led by the charismatic Don Mage, who began as a delivery driver in Brisbane, Domino's has grown from 17 stores to an ASX giant, valued at $3.7 billion, with a global footprint of 3,800 stores and a goal of 7,100 stores by 2033. First, a bit on the business model. If you want to understand Domino's and take nothing else away, pay attention for the next minute. It's really simple. Domino's is a franchise model, which means all that matters is franchisee profitability. In a typical environment of relatively stable costs, the key driver of franchisee profitability is same-store sales growth. This is where Domino's market leadership has provided significant network effects. Domino's scale allows it to advertise nationally, with strong sales translating into robust franchisee profits, which in turn result in franchisees wanting to open more stores, in turn allowing Domino's to invest more in marketing. This high return on capital model, with a large runway of growth and a strong management team has traditionally seen Domino's garner a premium valuation. Indeed. Domino's accelerated in COVID, as its delivery-first model hit the right note with housebound consumers who suffered a lack of choice. However, since hitting $167 a share in September 2021, Domino's has suffered some indigestion.
1: The key sources of Domino's indigestion has been high inflation and arguably acquisition overreach. Pitch as a value item, Domino's has been unable to pass through the high inflationary costs of labour, rent, food and electricity to customers leading to a dramatic decline in franchisee profitability. In terms of acquisitions, Domino's has entered too many markets. Focus is the key to success and Domino's arguably lost it between 2021 to 2023. In June last year, Domino's took action, announcing a restructure whereby it would exit Denmark, close unprofitable stores, target cost out and temporarily slow its store rollout to reinvest in franchisee profitability. These were sensible moves and necessary given its balance sheet position post recent acquisitions. At its AGM in November, Domino's provided an upbeat update, demonstrating green shoots with strong same store sales in Australia and New Zealand, guiding that first half 24 would deliver stronger growth versus the second half of 23, and earnings growth for the full year would be delivered in the second half of 24. With short interest dropping faster than the lithium price, the market seemed to believe things were on track. Unfortunately, that wasn't the case. Domino's provided an update in January. Do you want to share your thoughts on it?
0: In January, Domino's shares dropped 30% after providing its fourth downgrade in three years, citing weaker trading in Asia, particularly Japan, and deteriorating same-store sales in France. Importantly, Domino's reported that its gearing levels are operating comfortably within banking covenant thresholds. Digging into the detail, Japan, which accounts for about 90% of Asia's EBIT, is a key concern. Same-store sales in Asia gapped down from negative 7% in the first 16 weeks of the half, to negative 12% in the 10 weeks leading into the end of December. The point of concern is that management have been confident of an improvement in Asia as Japan had been lapping easier comparable sales in November and December. Accordingly, the deterioration in sales over the key Christmas period calls into question the strength of the customer proposition in this market. Weak sales in Asia magnified at the earnings level for DMP due to the high number of company rather than franchisee owned stores in this market. You have to ask yourself the question, if the proposition was so strong in Asia, wouldn't more people be lining up to become franchisees? Whilst Domino's didn't specifically disclose regional profitability, it seems likely that Asia's EBIT will be lower than the pre-COVID number, despite the addition of Taiwan, Singapore, Malaysia, and 70% more stores in Japan. Domino's called out that Japan is trading positively in January, albeit off weak comps, and that it has no plans to rationalise its Asia's operations, but we wouldn't be surprised to see corporate store closures in the region. In addition to Asia, France's same-store sales remained soft, and were the main reason European same-store sales went negative in the 10 weeks before the end of the year. Domino's called out a lack of execution in the market, and the fact that the restructuring is taking more time to effect due to French labour laws.
1: Taking a glass-half-full approach, the same-store sales performance of 8.2% in ANZ was the best in six years, driven largely by new product development, with customer order frequency and ticket size improving as a result. Domino's noted that the improvement in franchisees has seen an increasing appetite to open more stores in the region. ANZ initiatives were implemented six months ahead of EU and Asia, so investors could potentially take confidence that what we've seen in ANZ could transpire both in France and Asia, the problem markets. At the same time, earnings should improve materially in the second half of '24, driven by cost out, easing input costs and a full period of higher sales both from ANZ and Germany. In short, this update likely marks the low in terms of operational performance.
0: That's probably right. The question is, how long does it take to turn around Asia and France? Domino's growth is premised on same-store sales and a store rollout. To drive an improvement in same-store sales in Asia and France, it will need to push new product development and more importantly, reinvest in franchisee profitability. Asia and Europe are the key drivers of store rollout growth. We question whether analysts still remain too optimistic about the pace of rollout, particularly in Asia given profitability in the region. At the same time, elevated interest rates are also likely to dampen franchisee sentiment to open new stores in these markets.
1: Perhaps the greatest risk for investors lies in Domino's earnings multiple. Despite more downgrades than Appen, Domino's continues to trade at 19 times enterprise value to EBIT and financial 25. Domino's high multiple was initially achieved when it was growing rapidly in its home market pre-COVID. This was a time when there were no aggregators like Uber Eats and if you wanted something hot, delivered quickly, Domino's was it. At present, Domino's credibility and multiple remains intact. However, the longer it takes to resolve issues in Asia and France and return to growth, the more risk there is of investors slicing Domino's earnings multiple.
0: Right, let's wrap it there. Thanks everyone for listening. If you have any follow-up, you can contact us at info at Until next time, good luck compounding your capital.